Parents, if you have kids that still need to go back to class, you can either send them out the middle doors in the back or you can take them um, off to their classes. If you have a Bible you want to open up, we're starting a new series this morning, and so don't flip to Luke, flip to the book of Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. I'll sort of lay out how we're going to, to do this series, but we're going to spend kind of a limited amount of time in the book of Acts over the next few months. And as you get yourself opened up to there, we're just going to deal with the first five verses in chapter one this morning, so you can open up to Acts chapter one. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning and the opportunity for us to join together in song, for us to join together in communion as a church, taking time to celebrate and reflect on Christ's death on our behalf. God, we praise you that he's resurrected, living, and ascended. God, we pray that over the course of this morning, God, that his power and his presence here with us in the person of the Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word, God, press it into our hearts, magnify, glorify the gospel here among us this morning. God, would you mold us into humble, faithful, faith-filled, obedient followers who are submitted to you and your rule and your reign in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been preparing for the book of Acts, and I've been thinking about how to kind of not just introduce like this sermon series, but introduce the book and spending some time trying to summarize Acts into one sentence, which we'll get to here in a little while. I've also been thinking about how to kind of introduce one of the core concepts or themes within the book of Acts, and that concept or theme is obedience. And like low-hanging fruit when it comes to illustrations about obedience would be illustrations about kids or pets. Like you're trying to teach your children how to be obedient or you think back to when you were a child trying to learn to be obedient or you're, you've got a pet that's really difficult to wrangle or uh, a puppy or something that you're training. Those would be kind of like the low-hanging fruit of illustrations about obedience, but I'm not preaching to a room full of children and I'm not preaching to your pets. And so adult obedience is a little bit more difficult of a thing to talk about. We don't often stop and ask ourselves as mature adult individuals, hey, how, how obedient are you? Well, like obedient to who? My boss or the speed limit sign, or like, what are we talking about when we talk about obedience? In fact, most of us, if we take the concept of obedience and we sort of slide that over into our relationship with Jesus, though most of us could give the church kind of answer that scripture says some things and I'm supposed to do the things that scripture says, at a functional level, I think most of us operate under the idea that God will understand that the means justify the ends. That if I have a good end in mind, 
and I do what's necessary to get to the end, God will just sort of overlook the means by which I went about getting there. God is kind of like, ends justify the means. Like, he'll understand that I did what I needed to do in order to get to the end, even if the end is a good thing. And we're really good at talking ourselves into a place of saying, well, I think this corner that I cut or this thing that I did that maybe didn't directly align with scripture, I think that was like a gray spot anyway, where God didn't like explicitly say do or don't do this or that. And so there was like freedom in that. And I made my choice and the ends justify the means. But if you read scripture beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, narrative section, letter in the New Testament, prophet in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, like pick your spot. It's pretty clear that God is not an ends justify the means kind of God. He's a God who has authoritatively laid out what it means to be one of his people. There are clear instructions, parameters, commands for what it means to be people of the kingdom. As we worked our way through the gospel of Luke, we talked about Jesus as king and that he's collecting to himself by his death, resurrection, ascension, a people who are to be people of his kingdom. We spent 18 months tracking through the gospel of Luke, 18 months looking at his life and his ministry. And as we as a pastoral staff talked about what should come next, how do we exit 18 months of looking at the life and ministry of Jesus and move into something different on Sunday mornings. We all felt kind of a similar stirring that it, it seemed right that we take at least some time to briefly examine what happened in the lives of the disciples after Jesus ascended. And so that's what we want to do here in the book of Acts. Thankfully, Luke the same author who gave us the gospel of Luke went to the effort to tell us what it looked like as the kingdom of God expanded through Jesus's disciples after Jesus's ascension. And so we're gonna take 12 weeks. We're not gonna go verse by verse, which is different than how we normally preach on Sunday mornings. We're gonna take high points throughout the gospel, or excuse me, 18 months of trying to break the habit of saying the gospel of Luke is going to die real hard. And so we're going to take 12 weeks to work through the book of Acts and look at what does it mean? What happens in the lives of the disciples who are now the apostles as they're obedient to the commands of Jesus to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth? We want to invite you into reading the whole book as we preach through the high points, and I'll explain at the end of our service how that will work and what it will look like. But Acts gives us a look at what it means to walk in the shadow of the cross. Luke was all about what it looked like for these people at the time of Jesus to walk in the presence of Jesus. Acts is going to be what does it look like for the people of God to walk in light of or in the shadow of the cross. How did the disciples, now the apostles, take their understanding of who Jesus was, what he did, what that means for them, and put it into practice? Acts paints a picture for us of what imperfect but unrelenting, unglamorous, committed obedience to the king looks like. 
And when all the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit intersects with people who are yielded to him and his purposes, some pretty incredible stuff happens. You get the account of that in the life of the early church in the book of Acts. It records how the world was literally turned upside down through the Holy Spirit's work in the life and ministry of 12 people who were serious about Jesus. And so in an attempt to take the entire book of Acts and distill it into one sentence, both as we frame kind of this whole series and as we work our way through this morning, here's what uh, I've come away with. That the Holy Spirit is faithful to glorify the Son according to the will of the Father, through the faith-filled obedience of his people. The book of Acts gives you about 30 or 35 years worth of history of the Holy Spirit being faithful to glorify the Son according to the will of the Father, through the faith-filled obedience of his people. If you've got Acts chapter one open there in front of you, we're just gonna work with the first five verses this morning. Sort of the prologue to the book of Acts are like verses 1 to 11, so we're just taking half of that this morning. If you've got it open, you want to follow along as I read. It says this, Acts 1, verse 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. I want to try to get a number of plates kind of spinning this morning that will keep spinning over the next 12 weeks. So this morning I want to give some basics about the book of Acts, sort of frame for us what is this book, what's it telling us, what is its purpose, how's it structured. Then I want to zero in on these five verses in the prologue and at the end sort of zoom out and talk about how we can engage our hearts throughout this series. And so some basics about the book of Acts. The author is Luke. Now, when that slide pops up, it says Luke Basics. That's because the gospel of Luke is dying a hard death. (laughs) That should say Acts Basics. We just wanted, we really wanted one more week in the gospel of Luke. 84 wasn't enough. That should say Acts Basics. And basic number one is that the author is Luke. In Jesus's day and in the, the life of the early church, and actually throughout the Old Testament, how it is that books of scripture were present among synagogues in the Old Testament or early churches is not in like a nice bound book like this. They were actually contained on these large scrolls, some of them like 35 feet long. One continuous body of text on that scroll that like in Luke chapter four, we're told Jesus unrolled the scroll of Isaiah to a certain place where he wanted to preach from. So you would have all of these scrolls. Some of them would travel around. You might have access to copies of your own. And Luke and Acts typically traveled together. Two books, but considered one work, Luke-Acts, often talked about as though they were one. They're written by the same man, Luke, who is a doctor by trade. Tradition holds that he was a Gentile believer. So he's not a Jewish individual. 
He's a Gentile. He was a follower of Jesus, a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. In fact, you'll notice if you read through the book of Acts with us that about midway through the narrative of Paul's travels, all of a sudden the verbiage shifts from they or he to we. That's because Luke's present with them during, our, during those passages or during those sections of the book. Luke goes from interviewing witnesses and compiling a narrative of everything that happened within the life of Jesus and then everything that happened after to being a first-hand witness. He's taking in and participating in the things that are happening in the life of the early church and the spread of the gospel in the Mediterranean. The recipient of the book of Acts is Theophilus. It's the same individual that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke to. In fact, in the gospel of Luke, Theophilus is mentioned as or stated as most honorable Theophilus. He's got like an honorific sort of title. By the time you get to the book of Acts, verse 1 says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. Luke has dropped that title, and it's led scholars to speculate about why. Most people agree that this man, Theophilus, real individual, was like a wealthy benefactor to the writing of the Gospel of Luke. A curious individual who wanted to know about this man, Jesus, pays Luke to put together an account of Jesus' life. And so Luke sets about that task, addresses him according to his status or station within their world at that time, most honorable Theophilus. Then by the time he writes Acts, he drops the title. Many scholars think that's because by the time the book of Acts was written, Theophilus had become a believer. And now Luke relates to Theophilus not on the basis of their status in society, but as brothers in Christ. And so he just addresses the second book to Theophilus rather than most honorable Theophilus. There's no way to be entirely certain about that, but that's the prevailing theory among scholars today. The book of Acts was written right around 90 AD. Now, there's actually a really wide sort of accepted uh, range of dates for the book of Acts. Some say it was written as early as like the late 60s AD, others as late as about 110 AD, but most conservative estimates put it in the middle there. That the Gospel of Luke was written in the 80s AD, and then the book of Acts is put together right around 90 AD. And now how Acts functions, if you took the Old Testament and you took all the narrative sections, Genesis to Nehemiah, and you sort of like laid them out on a timeline, you could then take the rest of the books of the Old Testament, prophets, Psalms, Proverbs, and slot them up into that narrative when they were written. Acts is similar. Acts provides the narrative structure of the New Testament rather than the Old Testament. So a lot of the events that take place in the book of Acts are part of what spins out epistles and letters that are written later in the New Testament. Many of the figures in the book of Acts are the authors of those New Testament epistles. But rather than thinking of Acts as like a timeline that embodies everything that happens in the New Testament, it's better to think of it as a map provides the geography and the context on which you could take the letters of the New Testament and set them. Acts is like the footprint of where the New Testament takes place. Many of the prominent figures are present in the book of Acts. Many of the prominent places are present in the book of Acts, where then uh, authors of those letters are sending letters to the cities that are mentioned all throughout this book. It only records 30 or 35 years of history. 
And some of the epistles were written long after the events of Acts had already taken place. But Acts provides the general context and footprint that the authors of the New Testament were working with. It picks up literally right where the Gospel of Luke lets off. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, if you were here last week, Jesus has the disciples there with him. He says that these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He then opened their minds to understand the scriptures, lifts his hands to bless them, and he ascends into heaven. But before he does so, even in the Gospel of Luke, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Notice where Acts picks up. Verse four, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. The next thing that takes place, verse nine, is the ascension. Verses one through 11 form this like prologue. If you're familiar with watching like television series or documentary series on some streaming platform, Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or Disney Plus or whatever the case might be. And you start like episode four and at the start of episode four, it gives you like a recap, but you could hit skip intro on there and just jump into the new content. The new content in the book of Acts picks up in Acts chapter one, verse 12. The first 11 verses are like a recap of where the gospel of Luke ended and now the book of Acts is picking up. You could break the book of Acts into two really big pieces. Chapters one through 12 center on Jerusalem and the ministry of Peter. And then chapters 13 through 28 center on the work of Paul among the nations that surround sort of the Mediterranean area of the world. The roadmap for the entire book is actually given to you in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that the disciples, the apostles would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's exactly what the book of Acts shows you, how the gospel moves through those different places as the Holy Spirit is faithful to glorify the son according to the will of the father through the faith-filled obedience of his people. The writing style in the book of Acts is sort of difficult for scholars to pin down. It's generally a narrative, but it's filled with sermons, speeches, uh, descriptions of events that took place in various cities around the Mediterranean. If you're willing to call anything over a couple sentences long a sermon, then Acts records over 20 instances of the apostles preaching sermons in various places to various audiences. It's a narrative like the Gospel of Luke is a narrative. It's selective in its content. Luke is not exhaustive about everything that happens in this 30 to 35 year window. He picks and chooses. He gives great detail on some things. He's very brief about others. Like the Gospel of Luke, it's difficult to gauge the passage of time in the book of Acts. Sometimes he's very detailed about a small window of time somewhere. Other times he jumps forward years on you and gives you no indication that that's what he's done. The book of Acts is like a historical monograph, a single work that covers a focused subject or window of history, but it's also kind of apologetic. What is the church? What is this gospel? What is the way? Who are these followers of Jesus? Who's this man named Paul? Who's the Holy Spirit? 
It answers theological questions while giving you a narrative framework. The book of Acts attests to the truth of the gospel. It sheds light on the reality of the Trinity. It paints a picture of the work of the Spirit through the life of the church in the days and years immediately following Jesus' ascension. It also provides numerous fulfillments of things that Jesus said back in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus promised his disciples that they would be persecuted for following him. He promised his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit. He promised his disciples that when they were persecuted and they stood before courts and authorities, they didn't need to prepare what to say because he would empower them and give them words to speak. All of those are fulfilled in the book of Acts. Finally, the primary figure in the book of Acts is Jesus. Now that sounds like a very churchy answer. When we think about the book of Acts, we think about Peter and Paul. We think about their ministries. We think about the church in Jerusalem. But Luke tells you in the first sentence who the focus of this book is. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which would imply that the second volume is all about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. Jesus in proclamation, in demonstration, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the main figure in the book of Acts. His work via the Spirit, empowering his people, that's the consistent active agent in the book of Acts the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus among his people. That's who's driving the action forward, who's driving the expansion of the kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel in the known world at that time. The Holy Spirit is faithful to glorify the Son according to the will of the Father through the faith-filled obedience of his people. Now, What happens here at the beginning of the book of Acts? Jesus ascends, and as he does so, the prologue in the book of Acts lays the foundation for what's going to take place. The king ascends, but the kingdom marches forward. Luke recorded at the end of the gospel of Luke that the disciples would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8 records the same thing. This book, Acts 1-1, is all about what Jesus continues to do and teach. The ascension is not the end of Jesus' ministry. Luke sees the work of the Spirit in and through the ministry of the apostles as a continuation of what Jesus was doing during his time on earth, which was establishing, building, and demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God. That work is not going to stop now that Jesus has ascended. The kingdom of of God will march forward. Death on a cross couldn't stop it. Certainly the king's ascension in glory is not going to stop it. The book of Acts records that forward progress of the kingdom's expansion. The king ascends, but his people carry forth his message and his mission. Jesus commands them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait because they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. The means by which the kingdom advances shifts slightly. And I I mean that word slightly in the most intentional and small of ways. What did Jesus say to Peter after Peter's confession of him as the Messiah? On this rock, 
I will build my church. Not you, not you disciples, not you apostles, not some place on some other continent thousands of years later. Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus is the one who does the building. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus among his people that builds the kingdom, demonstrates the kingdom, expands the kingdom. When we sing the song that we opened our service with, build your kingdom here, we're offering a prayer that Jesus would fulfill the thing that he said he was going to do. So often we think that we're the agent in kingdom expansion. That what we need to do is we need to build the kingdom. That the building of the kingdom hinges on our proclamation, on our demonstration, on our gifts and our abilities. That could not be further from the truth. The expansion of the kingdom is the king's work. Jesus builds his church. But the physical presence of the embodied savior is no longer the means by which that spirit is working in the book of Acts. That's now the church, the people of God submitted and obedient to the king. The New Testament even goes so far as to call the church the body of Christ. And what's true in the book of Acts is true today. The Holy Spirit is glorifying the Son according to and for the fulfillment of the Father's will through faith-filled obedience by his people. The king builds. His people carry forth the message and the ministry. There's an important shift that takes place within the book of Acts. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' 12 closest followers and all those who surround his ministry are referred to as disciples. In the book of Acts, after Judas is replaced by a man named Matthias, the 12 are referred to as apostles. Now a disciple is a student, a learner, apprentice, pupil, a follower. An apostle is a delegate, a messenger, an envoy, an ambassador, or most literally, a sent one. Jesus' closest group of followers, along with a very small number of others in the New Testament, go from being learners to being called sent ones, apostles. And the very shift in their title signifies the difference in the role that they play. They're now envoys of the message of Jesus, selected by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, and sent by Jesus to continue his ministry. But they don't do that work alone. The king ascends, but the spirit comes to empower. It's Jesus who continues to do and to teach through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit we're reminded, verse four, that the father promised he would send. It's the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is the ongoing presence of Jesus among his people. It is the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus, who's the driving force behind the progress of the gospel in the book of Acts, as well as in the church today. It's easy for us to forget or to gloss over that reality. We get consumed by human figures. We read in the book of Acts, we get sort of swept into Peter or Paul. In our world today, we look around us and we get sort of swept up by prominent pastors, preachers, influencers within Christianity, people with platforms on social media or on the internet. And we look at those individuals and we think, that person, they build the kingdom of God. They're the one doing 
all of the work. It was Peter, it was Paul, it's that pastor over there or this person that I like to follow. But the reality is that when you see the kingdom of God moving powerfully, when you see scripture taught, when you hear the gospel preached, when you're able to witness demonstrations of the kingdom of God like we'll see in the book of Acts, you're not seeing the power of a human. You're seeing the power of Jesus, the Holy Spirit present and moving through an individual. And what ought to be praised in those moments is the glory of God, not the human vessel. When we give our praise to a human individual for the work of kingdom expansion and for the work of glorifying the son, we offer our praise to something lesser than what deserves it. What deserves the glory and the honor is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I I say this like sort of gently because I am a words of affirmation person, so I appreciate your words of affirmation. But when someone approaches me and says, hey, great sermon today, that illustration or the way you unpacked that passage or whatever the case might be, that really spoke to me today. There's this weird wrestling that takes place in my heart. I just kind of want to say thank you and move along because I know what the person is saying. But at the same time, don't praise me. The Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus is the active agent in whatever happened in your heart in the midst of that sermon. Open your heart, open your eyes, open your minds to something true in scripture convicted you and exposed something of sin within yourself or brokenness within yourself, moved you to get on board with his cause, with a proclamation of the gospel, to grow in holiness, to take steps of obedience, whatever the case might be. And so while I'm humbled and grateful to be the vessel, the vessel doesn't deserve the praise. The active agent does. And that's God himself. And so the king ascends in the book of Acts and the spirit comes in power. And when you read the book of Acts, we ought to marvel at the spirit while we sort of give passing glances to the vessels. We should marvel at Jesus, the king, and what he's doing to build his kingdom while we give passing glances to the vessels, Peter, Paul, the other prominent figures. Because the Holy Spirit is faithful to glorify the Son according to the will of the Father through the faith-filled obedience of his people. Last little bit here. How can we engage our hearts over the next 12 weeks? I want to ask two questions this morning that I hope sort of like bounce around in our brains and in our hearts over the next 12 weeks. The first one is this. Is Jesus at the center of of our lives. Now, if you've gone to church for very long as a good church person, you would reflexively say, of course. Is Jesus at the center of your life? Yes. When I was a youth pastor at a previous church, we would do almost like Sunday school for our high school and our middle school students. And I spent one school year with a particular group of boys. They were freshmen at the time. And anytime I would ask a question, you know, it's like nine in the morning or something like that. They're barely awake. I'm asking questions about deep spiritual things, right? One of the kids, if it was quiet and awkward enough, he would just say, God, Jesus, money, sex, rock and roll. 
and assume that whether I was asking for a positive response, God, Jesus, or a negative response, money, sex, and rock and roll, he hid it in the answer somewhere. Is Jesus at the center of our lives? We would reflexively say, of course he is. But as we read the book of Acts, reflect on our own lives, I would want to ask that question in a very nitty-gritty sort of functional kind of way. Is Jesus the center of our lives? Not our job, not our bank accounts or the pursuits of comfort, not our status or the next promotion, not some platform you might be building, not your spouse or the pursuit of a spouse, not your kids, not your kids' hobbies, not your hobbies, not interests or activities, not your social calendar, not your vacation schedule, not politics, not local, national, or even global news, not this church, not a Christian ministry, not a Christian cause, not some Christian subculture. The question is whether or not the king, Jesus, is central. The born, lived, crucified, died, buried, resurrected, ascended, and now empowering king. The Jesus of the gospel, is he central in your life? The Jesus who is savior, is he central? The Jesus of scripture, the Jesus who continues to do and to teach today, the Jesus who rules and reigns, who dwells with you by the power of the spirit, who is advancing his kingdom, who will come again, that Jesus, is he central? Is he periphery? Is he like an add-on to your life? Like you've got all the main things and you just sort of like try to tag Jesus into those things appropriately? Or is he the main thing and everything orbits around him? And then that would lead to question number two. As a result of whatever that answer is, are we living as faith-filled, obedient followers of Jesus? Now, if the answer to the first question is no, I have a suspicion as to what the answer to the second question is. But the answer to the first question could be, yes, I'm, I am genuinely trying my best to have Jesus at the center, and yes, I'm genuinely trying my best to live as faith-filled, obedient follower of Jesus. Obedient followers of Jesus whose lives orbit around him live with both feet planted firmly in the kingdom. We're empowered by the Spirit to display and proclaim that king and his kingdom, regardless of our circumstances. It doesn't matter if we're in this room on a Sunday, if we're somewhere else on a Sunday because we're traveling or something, or you're visiting this church and you're at your church on Sunday. We're trying to be faith-filled, obedient followers when we're here on Sunday, but it ought to be the exact same on Monday, wherever Monday sends you. And it ought to be the exact same on Saturday by the time you're preparing to come back to this place. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus, that we would bring realities of the kingdom to bear on all the varied and difficult realities of life in a complex modern society. What we're going to see described for us in the book of Acts is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit moves powerfully through followers of Jesus whose lives are centered on him and who are compelled by the gospel, empowered by his spirit, and living in faith-filled obedience. And the challenge as we read is to see what life looks like in the shadow of the cross 
without falling into a comparison game. Our standard as followers of Jesus is the kingdom and the commands of the king. Our goal is not to compare ourselves to people in the book of Acts. The Spirit used these early followers to do incredible works, but Acts is not ultimately about them. It's about Jesus and his work on behalf of his kingdom through his Spirit. It's easy for us to kind of slide into the trap of opening up our Bible and we're reading about Abraham or David or Noah. We're reading about Moses or we're in the New Testament we're reading about Paul or Peter or some of these figures and to ask ourselves, am I like David? Am I like Paul? Am I like Peter? But if that's your standard, it falls short because the call is not to be like those individuals. The call is to be like Jesus. And any biblical figure outside of Jesus that you would hold up as your model is ultimately a flawed, broken, sin-filled, flesh-filled human. And so if we read the book of Acts and the primary thing we're asking ourselves is, am I, like G- or am I like Peter? Am I like Paul? We're looking to the wrong standard. The question is, am I obedient to the king? How do I compare to the king? And then to grow in submission and obedience and to allow the Holy Spirit to do sanctifying work in us, but also through us out into the world. Now, the other side of that coin is that similarly, our goal is not to compare this church or any church to the Jerusalem church in Acts. It's easy to have rose-colored glasses about the church in Jerusalem. It's easy to read Acts 2, 42 to 47 and see the description of the church there and say to ourselves, the church today stinks. Okay, yeah, but the church then was really messy as well. You don't get very far into the book of Acts until there's one group of followers of Jesus who are being excluded while others receive this ministry of compassion. It's not very far into the book of Acts before a leader within the church in Jerusalem actually won't even sit down to have a meal with some of the followers of Jesus within the congregation and another leader has to come and rebuke him. It's broken. It's messy. You have all of the epistles in your New Testament that you have because early churches were broken and messy and someone said, hey, I'm writing you a letter so you can figure out how to take the gospel and apply it to your mess. And yet we kind of look at the church in Acts and we say, ah, what we need is to be like that. Yes and no. There are wonderful descriptions of what life in the church ought to look like in Acts. Right alongside really broken pictures of what sin looks like among a community of believers. If you were to get a few thousand years down the road from LCF, I hope someone would look back and say there were really beautiful depictions of what life in the local church ought to look like, as well as some really messy realities of what it means when a bunch of sinful people get together and try and figure out how to follow Jesus. The church is an outpost. It's an embassy of the kingdom a place where the realities of the kingdom of God are lived out often imperfectly as the people of the kingdom come together and allow the king to shape and refine us more and more into his image. We carry forward the mission and the ministry of Jesus that he might be glorified as the spirit works through us to accomplish the father's will. And our goal is to see the glory of God and the beauty of the kingdom and the power of the king 
and all have that move us into deeper obedience and fellowship with him. Not to say, am I like Peter? Is our church just like the church in Jerusalem? Am I like Paul? As we read through Acts over the next 12 weeks, my prayer is that our hearts would be stirred in the direction of the standard of the king and the kingdom. Not for the sake of comparison, but for the sake of growing in our obedience, growing in our longing for and the empowering of the spirit, growing in our, our willingness to be used by Jesus as he builds his church in his world to his glory on his timeline. That's our staff's prayer over the course of this series. That just as we read the book of Acts and we see that the Holy Spirit is faithful to glorify the Son according to the will of the Father through the faith-filled obedience of his people, that we would be able to step back, take the book of Acts, look at the kind of landscape around us and say, okay, God, what does it look like for us to be faith-filled, obedient people who allow the Holy Spirit to be faithful to glorifying the Son according to the will of the Father. My prayer for us as a church is not that we would wave the flag of LCF so that everyone in our area here would see. My prayer for us as a church is that we would be faithful to waving the flag of Jesus that the Holy Spirit might glorify the Son and the message of the gospel according to the will of the Father to reach the ends of the earth and that this place and the people that make up this place would just be the vessels by which that happens and what happens as the world looks into this place is that they say, man, Jesus seems pretty cool, not that church seems like a nice place. That's my prayer and I hope the book of Acts helps us kind of flesh that out and see that in living color in the life of the early church. Amen? Amen. I'm gonna pray and then we'll enter into a time of worship. God, thank you for this morning.